The reading for today is Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the faith. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Amy. Morning, Arcadia. How y'all doing? Good to see you guys. Uh, Before we get started, I I hate to interrupt the flow of uh, the service this way, but this was the best spot we thought we could put this little property update. We have a property update. We're going to show you some pictures in a minute to get you excited again, but there's some bad news and some good news. So the bad news is first. Um, We received notification uh, from the architect and the general contractor that everything was running fine, and then they ran into some problems, and we thought we were beyond the the spot of running into some problems. And so uh, they ran into some problems with the roofing. The roofing was not what they thought it was, and and it took them a lot longer to get the roofing done. And then they ran into some problems with the sewer, which hasn't been worked on since probably 1960. And, and uh, that's taking longer than we thought. Uh, so kind of everything upstairs and everything underground. <laughs> it's, the middle's really good, but everything else is kind of bad. So it's adding quite a bit of time, but not money, because they've already bid this out, but not money. But it is adding quite a bit of time. So. Uh, instead of June 5th or 6th being our first Sunday in there, it's going to be July 10th instead. They're going to finish about five weeks later. Uh, that'll give us some time to move out of here and move in there while still maybe having one or two more Sunday services here. Um, I will tell you that we need to remember that, um, at least this is what I've been telling myself, moving into this new building is not about the first Sunday. It's about the next several decades that we're going to be there. And the first Sunday is going to be exciting, but we need to remember we're going to be there for a very long time, and we want to make sure we get it right. So I appreciate the fact that they are, uh, they are also getting it right. The worst part of this really is that um, we, just, we keep getting into just the absolute dog days of summer when we have to move. And, and uh, I'm planning to be out of town, but Cody's going to have some problems. Uh, he's got to move all this music equipment now in, in, at the end of July, so be praying for him. And those of you that would like to bring portable misters and just follow him around, that would be uh, really helpful. But some updated pictures now. <clears throat> yeah, there's the front that they're working on. But remember, we're also going to have that perforated facade that's going to eventually go in there as well. But they're doing a lot of... That's, the front is coming along very nicely, and of course, they're keeping the... Uh, the stained glass. Next one. Uh, that is the side of the sanctuary. And again, we want to just remind you, of they're, they're putting on that new roof that was a problem, but is now going to be much better. But also that side, you can see the block there. That's what was under the stucco. And we really like what was under the stucco. So keep going. There you go. There's the san- inside of the sanctuary. It just keeps getting brighter and brighter in there. It was so dark. 
uh, when we bought the property. That's looking towards where the stage is going to be and the stained glass window there. Next one. There you go. Now, this is uh, standing uh, sort of like close to Camelback Road looking north. On the right there are the, uh, is the classroom building, and then straight ahead is the old pool cabana that we're converting into uh, the offices for the church. Very, very small offices, but offices uh, nonetheless, so that we will have a place, a small conference room that will hold about six people for some meetings and a couple of small private offices where we can have meetings as well. Most of the time, we like to office out in the community. Uh, but one of the things that we've been struggling with since uh, canceling our lease at our other office um, in June is that we don't have a really good private place to meet except back here in the green room. So we're excited about being able to get an office where we can meet privately with people. And then I think there's one more. Um, yeah, that's the side, uh, the other side, the east side of the classroom building. So um, is that it? Is that all the pictures? You can see the brick there that they we're able to uncover. Is that all the pictures, Fletch? Yeah? Okay, great. So there's your property update. Uh, so things are looking really good. We're just running behind schedule, and we apologize uh, for that. And um, that, that's always, you know, that's always hard news to hear. You don't like to hear that. It's, it can be frustrating at times, but um, uh, I really thought we were past that point. So if you want to blame somebody for getting your hopes up about moving in in June, blame me, okay? wasn't anybody else, or, or Cody. It's okay to blame Cody. It's always okay to blame Cody. So let me pray, and we'll get into Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. That's where you need to be for this morning. Lord God, we uh, just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to your gospel this morning and what you have to say. A lot of challenges in this morning's text, and Paul gets a, uh, gets sounds a little bit harsh in here, and so we need to deal with that. So just pray that uh, you'd give me the ability to walk through that in, in, a, in, in the proper way. Uh, also, just want to thank you for, for being a gracious God and allowing us to find this property and, and just help us to stay on the course of doing it right and doing it to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, by way of review, last week, Paul is writing this letter to Titus, who is the pastor of the churches in Crete, and he's going to be reading it in the churches in Crete. Uh, and really, just three things, I think, primarily that he's trying to get at. He, he wants the church to be, number one, orderly. Um, so uh, he says that in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, that he, he says, I, I have left you there so that you would appoint elders and help make the church orderly. So we talked about how there is a definite connection between good elder leadership, sound doctrine, and an orderly church. And Paul teaches about an orderly church in a lot of his letters, so this is nothing new. Secondly, he says that the church needs to be healthy, and I'm going to spend a minute on, on this review. Uh, you see that in chapter 1, verse 9, that the church is going to, needs to be healthy. Uh, the elders are to promote sound doctrine. The word there that's used several times by Paul in this letter that we translate as sound is the word hygiano, which, which, which actually is the basis for our English word hygiene, which means uh, healthy or or clean or uncluttered doctrine, uh, that, that the church would be healthy and teach healthy, sound doctrine. The health of the church always comes primarily from the proclamation of God's word and the teaching of healthy, God's, uh, healthy, doctrine, healthy doctrine. You find a church that's lost its way, a church that's dying, and chances are you will find a church that has walked away from healthy 
teaching and the proclamation of the true gospel in favor of some filtered down false gospel. Now, this also means that the church is going to offer care and protection for the flock. And this is an important thing to understand. This is where I want to spend just a, a little bit of time because we don't talk very much about this, and I think it's good for us to know this. Uh, pastors and elders are seen as, by the Bible as shepherds of a flock. And if you know anything about a shepherd, they care for and protect their flock. They provide care, they provide for the flock, and they protect the flock. The challenge comes when we all begin to define what it means to care for and protect a flock because some people have one idea and other people have another idea. And again, we have to look at Scripture for what it means to care for and protect uh, the people in the church. And the New Testament tells us, and this book that we're studying, Titus, is one of the places we get it, tells us that one of the essential ways that pastors and elders care for and protect the people in the church is through the teaching of sound doctrine, the teaching of Hygiano doctrine. Studying hard and praying that the Holy Spirit would give us insight and teaching well is an important part of care and protection. And I want you to hear this. This is very important. I am all about, and so are the rest of the elders and pastors here, we are all about <clears throat> responding to crisis, emergency, suffering, hurt, pain, and need. We are all about that. That's part of the call to care and protect as well. But it is not the only part of caring and protecting. And very often people see the church as that's the only part. Not so interested in the doctrine part, I just need you to respond to my emotional needs. We need to understand that it's really both of those things. And I am all about, let me tell you, think about your job if you work. There are parts, no matter how much you might love your job, there are parts of your job that you probably don't like to do. It's just like being a pastor. There are parts of my job that I don't necessarily look forward to. There's not the perfect job out there, I don't think, Okay. Yet I will tell you that the parts of my job that I truly cherish and love and that I feel privileged to be able to do are preaching and teaching and caring for the needs of the people and responding to the needs of the people when they are in crisis and they really need help. And so we need to do that as a church. But again, you look through the New Testament and you begin to see a theme that the purpose of the New Testament church, including what Jesus says specifically, is that we are to proclaim the gospel, we are to make disciples, we are to teach what Jesus taught us, his wisdom, and we are to equip the saints for ministry. The church should be taking care of the church, literally, is what that means, is that it's not just the people who have a vocation in the church, but rather we, we are trying to help everybody, all the priesthood of the believers, we are all going to take care of each other. And I would say this, the church is always at its best when it is proactive rather than reactive. Certainly there are times we have to be reactive, but we're at our best when we are proactive rather than reactive. Uh, we would rather keep a marriage from going bad than only react to marriages that have gone bad. We would rather help prevent financial disaster rather than only reacting to people who have gotten into financial disaster. And much of the crisis, suffering, and pain in the lives of people who seek the church for care is the result of not 
living a gospel-centered life based on sound doctrine in the first place. Did you catch that? Very many of the people who seek the church for help never bothered to live out this sound doctrine, never, never embraced the gospel, but now need help from the church. And I, gotta, I, gotta t- I, I see some irony here, and, and I just want to kind of uh, get this in front of you to hear, hear this, because every one of us, I know for a fact, every one of us is into preventative maintenance, preventative measures, and preventative medicine when it comes to things like exercise and working out, right? Some of us will spend, you know, hours every week in the gym. We're, we're into preventative measures, preventative maintenance. When it comes to diet and nutrition, we want to eat well. We are into preventative maintenance when it comes to creation care. We want to do things for the world, the earth, to help prevent this thing from atrophying. All of those things are really good. What boggles my mind is that we don't do it spiritually very well. We forego the time that we're going to spend with Christ in his word, receiving sound doctrine for all of these other preventive maintenance uh, 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 issues, and, and yet we don't seem to see the value here. We need to be doing spiritual aerobics. We need to be doing spiritual CrossFit if you're into that. Now, now here you go, rhetorical question. Is there going to be suffering emergencies and crisis in life even with prevention? Yes. Even if we eat the right things, we're going to get sick. Even if, even if we exercise three hours every single day, eventually gravity wins, we are going to bag, sag, and drag and end up in the ground, okay? You understand that? Yes. You know why? Because sin corrupts everything. Sin corrupts everything. So the question would be, why add to your suffering crisis and pain by ignoring sound doctrine? Why start behind the eight ball by ignoring this? Especially, as Paul is saying here, falling for false teaching and false gospels. This is why this passage is so important. I've said this before. Maybe I should stop saying it because I don't know that people are quite getting it. But the gospel is not magic Jesus dust that we sprinkle on our lives and pronounce all better. But that's the way a lot of people would like to treat the gospel. The gospel is rather rooted in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus' sacrificial death and resurrection and his consequential teaching of wisdom to us for all of life. For all of life. So, church should be orderly, healthy, and it should be striking. Striking. What do you mean by striking? Like a rattlesnake? No, not like that. It should be striking in that it's different, that it's attractive. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at Chapters 10 through 16 about how the church is striking. So it's orderly, chapter 1, verse 5. It's healthy, chapter 1, verse 9, which leads into this idea that the the church is going to be different and attractive, which is verses 10 through 16. Because our salvation in Jesus and and his sound doctrine that is taught to us, the church is going to be distinctive. It's going to be different in a good way from the world. And, and this is really important. This is one of the core values of Redemption Church. We, we really believe that theology is more than headnology. Head knowledge. Headnology. So good at introducing new words into our vernacular. 
Now you're going to miss my whole point. I was so excited about this point. Theology is more than just good head knowledge. We believe that theology really isn't theology until we actually start to live it out. Theology really means something because it, it transforms our lives. That's very important. Paul says it this way in, Ephesians, in uh, Philippians. I love this. He says, listen, you need to live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Now, of course, the irony is that you can only live a manner that's worthy, a life that's worthy of the, of the gospel if you have the gospel because the gospel is what empowers us to be able to do this. That life, because it's a life that's died to self so that others may be served, will be striking and attractive and different. So here's the big idea for today. Genuine faith is both proclaimed and lived. Genuine faith is both proclaimed and lived. Uh, There's a Bible translation called the J.B. Phillips. We use the ESV here, by the way. Every Sunday we're going to use the ESV. But we read all kinds of different translations because sometimes they can be very helpful to us. Let me read you this passage in the J.B. Phillips, which is kind of a, an amplified paraphrase, okay? Listen to these seven verses in this translation. But there are many, especially among the Jews, who will not recognize authority, who talk nonsense, and yet in so doing have managed to deceive men's minds. They must be silenced... For they upset the faith of whole households, teaching what they have no business to teach for the sake of what they can get. One of them, yes, one of their own prophets, has said, Men of Crete are always liars, evil and beastly, lazy and greedy. There is truth in this testimonial of theirs. Don't hesitate to reprimand them sharply, for you want them to be sound and healthy Christians. I love that Phillips uses that word healthy. With a proper contempt for Jewish fairy tales and orders issued by men who have forsaken the path of truth. Everything is wholesome to those who are themselves wholesome, but nothing is wholesome to those who are themselves unwholesome and who have no faith in God. Their very minds and consciences are diseased. They profess to know God, but their actual behavior denies their profession, for they are obviously vile and rebellious And when it comes to doing any real good, they are palpable frauds. So the challenge we take up today, and it is a big challenge, is this. Christians are often troubled, troubled by, and antagonized by various irreligious groups and worldviews that are primarily outside of the church walls. We're... we're, uh, Troubled and antagonized, for instance, by atheists who don't believe in God at all. In other words, they deny faith. Uh, We're troubled and antagonized by what scholars would call syncretists. You maybe have not heard that word, but a syncretist is somebody who takes a little dab from this uh, sort of faith uh, teaching or faith philosophy and a little dab from here and a little dab from here, and they sort of construct their own world of faith. In other words, they corrupt faith by mixing it. So an atheist denies faith, a syncretist corrupts faith, or we're troubled by secular humanism. Secular humanism is essentially the the belief that we are God. So in other words, we are faith. Deny faith, corrupt faith, we are faith. Our faith 
secular humanists would say, depends on us. It's a very anthropocentric or man-centered faith. We think those are the biggest problems that the church faces. However, the greatest threat, according to Scripture, scripture, and that I've found in reality, the greatest threat to the church has always been those in the church who, as verse 16 says, profess to know God but deny Him by their works and thus teach a false doctrine or a false gospel. That's the biggest challenge. It's hard to understand the greatest threat to the church does not come from those outside of the church but from inside, from those who refuse sound doctrine and act on their own agendas rather than biblical teaching. This is exactly what Paul is teaching here. By far the greatest danger to a church is never a full frontal assault, the ones that we see coming, but rather those on the inside who sidle up to us and they weave their falsehoods and lies into the truth of the faith, thereby diluting and contaminating the faith. And it sounds so good. It sounds so good. It tickles our ears, Paul says to Timothy. In this paragraph, we're going to see Paul talk about this. And we see also emerging in this paragraph a, a sort of a, a, a three-point outline. So verses 10 and 11, Paul wants us to understand humble submission. Verses 12 through 14, Paul wants us to understand the desire for discipline. And then verses 15 through 16, Paul wants us to see that there is an active faith-life correlation, an active faith-life correlation. So let me read verses 10 and 11, that first part there where we're going to talk about submission. But I'm going to start at verse 9. Verse 9 is very important. We hammered this last week uh, about how verse 9, where it says, here are the qualities uh, of, the, of the elders that you need because they are going to have to confront this false teaching. So watch how verse 9 leads into this next long paragraph. So verse 9 says, He, the elder, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be, may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, the Judaizers. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So that phrase there, empty talkers, is literally without rational grounding. The false teachers, literally what Paul is saying, anybody who teaches false doctrine in a church is without rational grounding. And, and there seems to be an emphasis in this passage on Jewish false teachers, but Paul also talks about the Greeks as well. He mentions the Cretans. So he's really talking about any false teacher, Jews or Greeks, whether they're, they're teaching their form of uh, sort of theological avoidance that the Jews teach or, or theological licentiousness that the Greeks might teach. So he's talking about all of them, anybody who would do this, but he's talking about teaching that has no rational grounding. So here you go. Paul would say that biblical truth and sound doctrine is rational. It's rational. See, one of the characters, for instance, of secular humanism, and it sounds so good, it sounds so good, one of the characteristics of secular human, humanism is that authority, submission to authority other than yourself is foolish. You never submit to any other authority. You are the authority. Submitting to any other authority is going to be foolishness. That sounds really good. 
This is where we get this new term, uh, the church of meism from, meism. That's where we get that term. But now, just take away the bumper sticker mentality and the 140 character mentality that we live in in our culture and really start to think deeply about this idea that you're only going to submit to yourself. Take this notion to its rational, logical conclusion, and there are obvious problems. If everyone is in authority, what do you do with the, when these authorities collide? And collide they will. So you see what Paul is getting at here. They had this problem in the first century as well. The false teachers are insubordinate, he says. They are refusing to submit to the proper authority. Uh, false teachers, whether they're Jewish or Greek, they like to say or, or behave in this way. Human speculation is better than divine revelation because we humans are always smarter than God, aren't we? We've got this thing figured out. He's really not here. We're the ones that have to live in this. Okay? So they are empty talkers and deceivers, and they teach for one thing, profit. Profit. They're not teaching for the building up of the body. They're not teaching for the equipping of the saints. They're not teaching for the care and protection of the flock. But rather, they're teaching for shameful game. They're, 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 they're teaching to line their own pockets. And they refuse to submit to the proper authority of Jesus and sound doctrine. And as a result, they are upsetting entire households. They're turning households on their side. This is not, this is not caring or protective. And Paul says they need to be stopped and they need to submit. Now, I, I get it, okay? Um, Submit is the new S word in our culture. I get that. You would probably rather I use the other S word up here than submit. I see a lot of long faces. He's going to talk about submission. Yes. Here's what I've experienced whenever we teach on biblical submission. We teach that wives should submit to their husbands. Wives get all upset. We teach that husbands should submit to their wives by loving them as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands get all upset. We start looking for loopholes. Yeah, but what if she doesn't matter? You picked her, okay? No, she picked me. Okay. We teach that youth need to submit to and respect their parents. They dismiss me as, a, as an old codger that's out of touch, and they get all upset. Teach that... Adults need to submit to their, their bosses in the marketplace, and adults get upset. And then in this book right here, in chapter 3, as in several other places in this book, it says that we also are supposed to submit to the governing authorities. We're supposed to submit to the government. And when we teach that, everyone gets all upset. And, and when we teach that in the church, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that in the church we're all supposed to be submitting to each other and, and, and honoring each other. And seemingly nice, kind, rational Christians get all upset. And it goes on and on and on. So here's the truth. And I know some of you right now, you know that I'm going to talk about submission. And so you're wrapping yourself in your little spiritual Teflon. Okay, this doesn't apply to me. Okay, so he's going to teach on submission. Ping, ping. It's just going to keep, you know, darting off of me, all right? The force field from lost in space. Danger, danger. Only a few of you got that, I know. Sorry. I'm really old. Uh, here you go. Let's just make this clear, all right? Submission is not a problem and a challenge for women. 
It's not. Submission is not a problem and a challenge for men. Submission is not a problem and a challenge for children. Submission is not a problem or challenge for adults. Submission is not a problem or a challenge for taxpayers. It's not a problem or a challenge for employees. It's not a problem or a challenge for bosses. It's not a problem or challenge for parents or African Americans or Latinos or Caucasians or heterosexuals or homosexuals or transgenders or Republicans or Democrats or independents. Submission is a human problem and it's brought on by sin. Submission is every person's kryptonite. Every single one of us. And it's brought on by the original rebellion that happened in Genesis 3. We've been doing it ever since. The first sin was was refusing to submit to the proper authority, rebellion against the proper authority, and then the second sin was what? Blame shifting, pointing our fingers at other people. God, the woman you gave me, that's why I sinned. It's the oldest dodge in the book, y'all. Here's the deal. We need a savior for that. We're not going to be able to fix ourselves on this. We need a savior for this. Here's Here's what we need. We need Jesus who submitted himself to the cross so that you and I might be able to do this. That you and I would have the power of the Holy Spirit living in us so that we can set ourselves aside and we can submit. We can act out of love and generosity and mercy and wisdom, certainly, and wisdom. But Jesus went and submitted himself to the worst, most horrific thing ever, the cross. And now he says, see, I did that. You can do this by the power of my spirit living in you. I was not honoring and respecting my mother and father as I should have early in my Christian walk. And during that time, I was teaching at the college department at North Phoenix Baptist Church. Jackie and I were leaders in there. And I'll tell you, I was all about... You know, submit to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Citizens need to submit to the governing authorities. U of A graduates need to submit to ASU graduates. I was all about the proper submission. Okay? And a deacon confronted me about my lack of honor and respect for my parents. And I had every excuse, every rationalization, and every reason why he was wrong and I was right and I was okay to do what I was doing. Everyone. Submission is a sinful human problem and we all have it. We need the grace, the power, and the sound doctrine of Jesus. It's really important. So then we go into this idea of discipline, verses uh, 12 through 14. Paul writes, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Well, this is interesting. (laughs) There's there's a little rhetorical problem in this passage here. Maybe you saw it there. If Cretans are always liars, and the prophet is a Cretan, he must be lying, right? What do you do with that? Okay, Can we trust this quotation that Paul is giving us? Somebody says, you know, all Arcadians are turbo, urban, funk, jive, hipsters, whatever. Do we trust it? I'm from Arcadia, I know. Do we trust that quotation? Here you go. Uh, the, The... 
the prophet, actually the poet, more accurately, that Paul is, is citing here is Epimenides, pretty famous poet in his time. And he's a poet. He's using hyperbole for effect. It's like saying, hey, were you at Fashion Square on Saturday? Man, the whole world was there. Well, the whole world wasn't really at Fashion Square. It only felt like that, okay? But I'll tell you, this idea about the Cretans has stuck, hasn't it? We're 2,000 years later, and don't we still hear people using that, that phrase? You Cretan, what are you doing? We still use that. And I'm not talking about from my generation. I hear people around Paradise Valley Community College using this. Students, 20-year-olds saying this. You Cretan, what's wrong with you? Probably not a good thing to be a Cretan the last 2,000 years. So here's what Paul is saying. This is important. Titus was pastoring in a culture where the people tended toward deception, wickedness, and sloth. Kind of like today. This stuff applies today. And Paul says, now listen to this language. This is where it gets really gritty. He says, they must be silenced and they need to be sharply rebuked. See, in a context where there's deception, wickedness, and sloth, there's no room for false teaching and false gospels. Only the sound doctrine of the wisdom of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel will do. But we're not very comfortable with Paul talking like this. Paul seems harsh, intolerant, and judgmental. All the things we in our world today harshly judge and do not tolerate. Remember, this is going to be read out loud in every one of the churches in Crete. And if there's anybody there with a coexist bumper sticker on the back of their camel or their chariot, they're going to be very upset by this. What do we make of this? Just personally, let me just talk a little bit autobiographically here. I am, I am a really big believer in coexisting tolerance and acceptance and inclusion. Big believer. And I've always struggled with disclaimer statements like this, but I've also found in communication that they're necessary in order to properly frame a conversation, so I'm going to say it anyway. I will tell you, I am friends with, and I do a lot of business with, many people who do not share my faith, many people who don't, don't share my worldview, many people who don't share my sexual orientation, many people who don't share my views on transgender, many people who don't share my political leanings. And I'm certainly friends with and do business with Many, many people who do not share my deep and profound love for the Chicago Blackhawks, Seinfeld, Hart, and the Godfather movies. It's, it's, it's a ministry of sacrifice, I will tell you. But here's the deal. When it comes to what is ultimate and eternal, and Jesus is really clear on this, y'all. When it comes to what is ultimate and eternal, we cannot collapse truth into error and find some sort of a middle ground. You cannot collapse truth into error and find some sort of a middle ground. All this does is bring disaster, and we know it. Jesus says very clearly, there are those on the road to life, and there are those on the road to destruction. He says, he describes the road to destruction this way. He says it's really wide, and there are a lot of people on that road to destruction. Why are they on that road to destruction? Because they believe it's leading to life. 
They've heard the false teaching. They've heard the false gospel of culture or whatever. And, and, and the way he describes that road, even though it's very wide, it's like rush hour tra- traffic. There's a lot of people on it, and you're kind of elbowing your way through this very wide road that appears to be going towards life but is actually leading towards destruction. And then he says, the road to actual life is very narrow and few are on it because this is a tougher road. And even though the road is much smaller than the other road, you have a lot of room. You know, it's, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning on the 51 because, because not many people are on it. So Paul... In this passage, and by the way, I would say Jesus in other passages, they sound intolerant, don't they? They sound really intolerant. But it is the type of intolerance that is not about florists and bakers and voting rights and college classroom debate. It's the type of intolerance that a cancer specialist practices when she removes cancer. It's the type of intolerance that your commercial airline pilot practices when he sets the flaps on the wings one way and one way only for takeoff and landing. He's very intolerant of those flaps being set a different way for takeoff and landing than they're supposed to be. And aren't we glad he's intolerant, right? That's the kind of intolerance that we're talking about. It's the type of intolerance that every person in the world expects and demands and considers to be common sense. Not everything is true. It's just not possible. I, I know so many Christians who have an open mind, open to all of this other stuff. And James specifically says the problem with that, in James chapter 1, the problem with that is the Christian with the open mind to all of this false teaching becomes like a small vessel on a very uh, troubled ocean that is just being tossed to and fro by the winds of culture, the winds of cultural wisdom. Jesus is the rock. He is the anchor. He is the true north. He's the one that you can set your life on. Ideological tolerance always breaks down no matter who attempts to practice it. Paul says false teachers need to be shut down because they persuade people to turn away from the truth. And and so you say, well, what were the false teachings then, and what do they have to do with us today? Well, there's false teaching today. Let me give you an example. And by the way, it's really easy for somebody to stand up here and talk about really radical false teaching that uh, most everybody in the the congregation would look at and go, oh, okay, I'm in the clear. I don't believe that. That's silly. I'm talking about the really subtle stuff. Again, they sidle up beside us inside a church, and they mix it with the truth of the gospel, and so it sounds so good. And so we have the, the false teaching of consumerism in our churches. You deserve to have your emotional needs met. Show me where it says that in Scripture. Sounds good, and you can wrap it in some scriptural truth possibly, but here's what scriptural truth will tell you. You have a need, and Jesus is going to give you what you need, not what you want or not what your felt need is. He's going to give you what you actually need, and he's going to do that because he loves you, not because he's angry at you, wants to rain on your parade. Here's one. This idea that salvation is really man-centered and that we can fulfill our own destinies and that, and, that, and, that, and that Jesus is just sort of like a, a life coach for you. You know, he's, he's going to just, he's going to kind of help you and guide you and all that stuff. And he's there when you get into a little trouble. That's not gospel-centered teaching. But it, it can be, you can pull that out of here 
If you have an agenda, the, ideal of, the idea of moral codes, when you get to an end of a sermon and you say, all right, do these five things and this part of your life will be good. Nothing about Jesus. Do these five things and this part of your life will be good. Nothing about Jesus. No, all the power comes from Jesus, not the five things that you're going to do. Because you're going to forget about them by the time you go to lunch. Even if you wrote them down. The problem with moral codes, Jesus talks about this. When, we, when we're really good at moral codes and morality, all we're doing is whitewashing the outside. And so we look really good to other people, but on the inside we are still a mess. And here's the other problem with whitewashing our lives and whitewashing uh, our behavior. When we do that, the true light of Jesus can't shine through because everybody's looking at you and me. And you and I get all the glory, and the one who's supposed to get the glory doesn't get the glory. We're whitewashed tombs. We look good on the outside, but we are dead on the inside. The true gospel transforms us from the inside out. Individualism, this idea that what the individual wants trumps what the community wants. We have that running rampant in the church. Uh, and I mean the greater Christian church. Cause-oriented stuff. Uh, it's not Jesus so much as the causes that I've attached my name to. Causes are good. But if you're doing it without the power of Jesus, it's just another form of whitewashing morality. Education, listen. I am all for education. But if, if you're saying Christian education, Christian education, Christian education, Christian education, and that's the only club in your bag, okay, it, might be, it might be your driver, it might be your three iron, but if it's your only club in your bag, you're in trouble. Education is good, but if that's the only one you're pounding, you're in trouble there. Of course, the prosperity gospel, come to Jesus, you'll be rich, or some form of that. These are all false gospels, and Paul says they have to be rebuked. Lastly, he says, there needs to be an active faith-life correlation, and you see that in the last two verses, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So this is a direct attack now on those who claim to know God, but obviously don't because of what they teach and how they live. And, and here specifically, I'm going to use the example of the Jewish false teaching, what Paul would call the, the Judaizers. Here's what they teach. Mostly they would teach a theology of avoidance, and there's a lot of churches that teach a theology of avoidance. We, we, we ground ourselves in what we don't do and what we are against. And, and what, we're, what we're saying essentially is that all things are evil out there in the world and they must be avoided. The, the problem comes in with the fact that God has created everything, that this secular sacred divide is, is not really accurate. God has created everything. It's been corrupted by sin. Nevertheless, he's created everything. And, and as Christ followers, our job is not to avoid the world, but we're to go out and embrace the world and be a part of God's plan to redeem the world and be ambassadors of Christ to the world. Jesus says, do not be of the world, but be in the world. Your light needs to shine brightly, and it can't shine brightly unless you go out there. We are to engage and embrace the world. But for these moralists, these Judaizers, these false teachers, your goodness as a person is because of, of what you are against and what you avoid. Now, it sounds silly when we say that out loud, but there's a lot of theology like that, and frankly, it just kind of sounds boring. 
The gospel is a lot more exciting and interesting than that. But I'll tell you, history affirms popular appeal of such theology and moral codes. Being anti this and that makes you a good person. But it has no power. It has absolutely no power. Human avoidance as a moral code has little sustainability because of the genuine lure of sin in our lives. We just, ah. In fact, I'll tell you what. I'm as guilty as this as anybody. Pronounce something as off limits, that almost always ensures that people are going to get messed up in there. You ever know this simple illustration? Just put up a wet paint sign and you're going to see little handprints all over on that, you know? You don't, go, you don't walk around in life touching walls, do you? Until you see a sign that says, went paint, and then there's something that just compels you to touch that wall. Paul says it this way in Romans, in the law there is sin. You see that? The, the law reveals our sin, but here you go. Jesus removes our sin. Jesus removes our sin. Here's the irony now. So that's what they teach. Here's the irony, how they live. For even those who teach a, an avoidance theology, they, they rarely behave in line with what they preach. You ever notice that? <laughs> I'm going to set up a moral code that I can live up to, but of course, it's like, a, it's like a professor's syllabus. I have the right to make changes down the, down the line. Ah, I'm not going to be able to live up to that. I'm changing my moral code. See, a problem's not morality. People generally know what to do and what not to do. It's just simply a lack of power to be able to do it. Therefore, actually acknowledging uh, God and knowing God and embracing Jesus and, and his grace and his power is what gives us the ability to proactively live a life that is constantly in the process of being conformed to his son, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. The beauty of the gospel is, is that unlike a, a theology of avoidance, it allows us to acknowledge our weakness and our need for God's grace and power. It allows us to say, we're messed up. We don't have to dress up ourselves on the outside with all of this morality. We can just come as plain as we are to Jesus and to each other and go, here I am, man. And I am saved by grace. And I am empowered by the Holy Spirit residing in me now. And now we get to go and engage the world and serve the world. That's what the gospel is. It's the reality that God is good. We're not. But in him, we're now righteous and justified. And so we proclaim and serve just as our Savior has proclaimed and served. He says, deny yourself and grab your cross. Follow him. That's the power of the gospel. Let me pray and we'll come up for... Uh, musicians will come up for our last song in our time of response. Lord God, we just pray that you'd give us this power to be able to do this. And God, we love you that you have, you have saved us. You've asked us into this life of submission and discipline and, and correlating our life to faith. And we love you for that. But we also come really with boldness and confidence to your throne of grace and just ask that that in humility we would gain even more power. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.